next, let me know. Pharisees, not true believers, put stumbling blocks and traps among fellow believers. So God says, listen, never do something intentionally that causes a fellow believer to be offended and never do something intentionally that tempts people to sin. And I assure you, when you judge one another, you will tempt people to sin. You know, in biblical counseling, we've been learning, and I've grown more and more convinced that James 4, 1 and 2 is the key to all of this. Because whenever there's conflicts, we always think of what tempted us to be angry. But the Jesus, the word of God, James says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not your passions that are at war within you? So whenever there's a conflict, we have to start and say, okay, what do I desire? What do I want? There's something that I desire that I'm not getting. But instead, it's the other person who did it. I'm guilty of this. I am convinced that I'm not alone. So God says, look, don't do that. Don't do that. One of the most important words in verse 13 is this word, decide. Decide. Look at the second half of 13. It says, instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother and sister. This command to, deny, to not cause your brother to stumble is a choice. It's a decision. Jesus is saying, you have to choose to do it. Because if you don't, then guess what? You chose not to do it. That word decide is important. Because when these things happen, you can't, I can't blame it on the post, the tweet, or anything else that we disagreed with because I'm making a choice. I'm deciding not to do so. Just because I'm tempted doesn't mean I'm allowed. And whether you're a pastor or a new Christian, the rules are the same. It is a choice. Paul goes on in verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing unclean, to that one that is unclean. This is an application of verse 5. Verse 14. Look at verse 5 in Romans 14. Here's what Paul says. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. So now in this verse, in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord. In other words, I'm fully convinced in my own mind. I'm fully convinced. I know and am persuaded in the Lord. I'm fully convinced in my own mind. And then he goes back to the context of food. But the implications for us are bigger than food. Because many of us aren't tempting people to stumble or setting a pitfall because of food. We don't judge on those specifics, so we have to think about, well, what is food to us? What's the context for us? Paul says this, nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers it a thing to be unclean, to that one that is unclean. Listen to what he says here. 
So Paul said, I'm persuaded that nothing's unclean. I know that. But if this person thinks it's unclean, then for them it is. And it's not a big deal. I'm not going to fight with them over it and convince them, no, this is unclean. You're not a Christian if you think this is unclean. You don't really believe in Jesus if you think this way. He says, look, I know there's nothing wrong with it. It's not unclean. But to that person, it is. He creates an important rule. It's not sinful to believe differently about theological matters that may affect your morality. Let me explain what I mean. Because someone will undoubtedly think I'm saying that there's no such thing as sin and we don't stand up for righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. Remember the context of this passage in verse 14, verse 1. It's a disputable matter. These are commands that are not explicitly commanded in Scripture or they're reinterpreted through Jesus. Right? So the Sabbath meant one thing before Jesus. It meant something after when Jesus came. So they're either commands that aren't explicitly commanded in Scripture or they're reinterpreted through Jesus. And we figured out what it means. Now, the issues that Paul brought up in last week's passage are eating and the Sabbath day, right? Sabbath day is, is uh, Exodus 31. It's all about the Sabbath, how important the Sabbath was to the Jews. Leviticus 11, dietary restrictions. These were big theological issues in their day. And both of those will have implications for how you obey depending on what you think. So if you think, I can't eat this. If you're a Jew, now remember the context of the church. The church is both people who've never heard of Jesus, who were never a Jew, and then you got people who were Pharisees, devout followers of the law, coming together in one church. And so you're going to have different perspectives on things like even eating and drinking. What days are holy? So if you're a Gentile believer, you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus just like the Pharisee does, you walk, you show up to a dinner, and you got a plate of grilled shrimp with a little old bay on it. <laughs> and you go to the table, and the Pharisee sees that and says, hey, fam, what is that? Is that shrimp? And he's like, oh, yeah, man, I can't wait to get into this. He's like, oh, man, I can't eat that shrimp. Now, to me, I think that's sinful. I'm getting some shrimp today as a result of thinking about it. He says, look, this church has differing views. So the Jew is like, I'm not going to eat that. Even though he's allowed to eat that, the Bible doesn't say he has to eat that. He might decide, I just don't want to eat that. I may get sick. I'm not used to eating that. I'm just not going to do it. And the Gentile might be like, well, I don't see anything wrong with this. Now imagine them arguing over if you eat this, you're not a Christian. Or if you don't eat this and you don't understand grace. Imagine sitting there watching this argument. Believe it or not, that happens all the time. But it's just not this issue. Watching believers argue over stuff. And in the, and in the end, losing their personal morality by trying to impose on someone else's consciousness a morality. So God's concerned about it. 
So Paul says, look, I'm persuaded in the Lord. Nothing's unclean. These will have implications for how people do things. And he says, look, if they struggle with it, then it's real to them. And he says, that's okay. We will have different convictions on things that are not explicitly biblical. And by biblical, I mean biblically commanded. There's a difference between is it in the Bible versus does the Bible tell you to go after this? There's a difference. Paul says, look, it's okay. It's not a big deal. If he thinks it's, I know I'm good. I can eat this. But if he thinks he can't, it's not a big deal. It's okay. He says, what's not okay is verse 15. Says, for if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. So here's what's not okay. Imagine I told you the story last week. Well, me and my wife, we went to a family's house. They asked her, what do I like to eat? She said, I don't like tomatoes. We go there. They're passing around the food. The plate is covered. When I open up my plate, there's rice and about 37 tomatoes sliced on it on the top of it. And they, know, they knew I didn't like tomatoes. I looked at it, and they looked at me, waited for me to respond. I just said, all right, I'm ready to pray. I told you, I was going to slide them tomatoes to the right. We was going to cha-cha slide them things right to the right. <laughs> and then they jokingly said, nah, Kurt, we just playing. We know you don't like tomatoes. And they gave me a plate of some shrimp. They made up for it. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if it was shrimp, but it sounds better when you add the shrimp to the story. Now, imagine if they would have said, Kurt, we know you don't like tomatoes, but that's what we made. So you got to eat these tomatoes. Now, I know if I would have ate those tomatoes, I might have gotten sick I just can't eat tomatoes. For some of y'all, it might not have been a big deal. When I was a kid, I bit a tomato and thought it was an apple, and I still have trauma from that moment. <laughs> I was expecting something sweet, and it was sour, and it was nasty. I threw up, and to this moment, there's trauma. Please don't judge my trauma. I've helped many of you with yours. Don't help me with mine by giving me tomato. Unless it's a tomato sauce, like a pizza, spaghetti. It's probably not helpful. But it's the context. We're talking about food, right? Paul's talking about food. I'm teaching y'all how not to judge your brother. Look, here's what he says. Imagine if they said, you got to eat this. No, but what he says is, look, I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to eat. This isn't even, it's not that serious to me, even though I know that there's nothing unclean in this. Remember, this is a big theological issue. This is not how we would, we're not a couple of foodies fighting over what's, what's this. Is it gluten-free or not? Oh, just eat it. Who cares? About, no, that's not what we're talking about here. He's talking about a real theological issue that would affect people's view of each other. This is a big deal to them. And he uses it as a case in point, as a case study to say, look, if your brother's unwilling to eat, then just don't eat it. He said, that's how you walk in love. I'm not, it's, not that, it's not that serious to me. My Christian liberty is not that serious that I got to tempt you in order to have it. Now, if you look at today's day and age, it's let me tempt you with my Christian liberty because you don't have it. Who are we being conformed to? What morality is guiding the way we think and act. He says, look, it's not that serious. You're not walking in love. 
You are no longer walking in love according to love as defined by God if you're not even willing to set aside your personal preferences because it causes someone else to struggle. When we fail to walk in love, at least two things are happening. We are redefining what love means. So if we're not walking in the way that God commands, then we've redefined what it means and are making it fit what we're comfortable with. Our definition of good and evil as it pertains to love. You know what's beautiful about Jesus? This is what the Pharisees could not figure out. You got Luke 10, right? Jesus is sitting at a party. And it says he's reclining at the table. They didn't have tables the way we do, which had, they had pillows and low tables. I definitely couldn't eat with them. I'm not comfortable leaning to the side like that. It said Jesus was just, he was just leaning. And it was a party full of tax collectors, prostitutes, and the fair. And he wasn't teaching. It wasn't like he gathered them there so he could instruct them. He was just chilling. And so the Pharisees looked at his disciples and be like, hey, why is he sitting with them? In their minds, we don't do that. And Jesus said, oh, you guys don't know what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You see, Jesus accepted people where they are in their consciences. If your conscience made you feel like that, Jesus accepted that. Jesus wasn't like, oh, man, I'm around these prostitutes and sinners, man. Let me. You know why? Because he was comfortable in his identity in the Father. And when you're comfortable in your identity in the Father, then you can be around other things and not be bothered by it. Because Jesus wasn't concerned that he was going to be changed by what these people were doing. And he wasn't concerned about what they were doing because he know I can tell them how change happens. But he was comfortable enough in his, in his identity in Christ. I promise you, I cannot prove this because I'm not the Lord, but I bet you if we pulled back the spiritual curtain, most of the judgment and the anger and vitriol towards other believers is because you're not comfortable in your identity in Christ, so you don't want somebody to be comfortable in this. You impose on their consciences because it makes your conscience feel better. But God says, look, if, this is, if you're fully convinced in your own mind, then be fully convinced. There are people that get offended at me and call me providence, and that's just, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm convinced in my own mind. If you can show me where I'm sinning, then show me that. But just because you don't like what I said doesn't mean I'm sinning. I'm convinced in my own mind. I'll give you biblical reasons why I think what I think. Most people don't do that. They give you personal reasons, political reasons. Where's the Bible at, fam? You're a believer. People will impose on your consciences and make you seem like the villain. Case in point, this tweet came out after the abortion announcement was made by a very popular daughter of a really popular Christian um, influencer. This is what she said. Every single Christian with a platform today that uses this massive victory to talk about health care reform, making abortion unthinkable, and the like, mark them. They're playing for the other team. Then she gives reasons. Number one, they demonstrate that they have never done the work of evangelizing to women outside of abortion mills. They don't know what they're talking about. They're shilling for democratic overreach and social programs that the church ought to and is already doing. They're making the same excuses for baby murder that those that support baby murder do. So if you're a believer and you think, hey, we should try to make abortion unthinkable, she's saying mark them because they're playing for the other team. 
what in the world are you talking about? And why are you telling other people to mark other Christians like that? In this day and age of violence, there was a day and age where we didn't even know where Supreme Court justices live. And now people can find out and show up at your house, threaten your family. And you saying, mark other Christians? As the daughter of one of the most notable Christian theologians of our day, I wish somebody would come to my house because she said, go mark me. <laughs> we will not be eating shrimp. I'm going to be like you and misinterpret scripture and make laying hands on them be something different than what the Bible intended. I'm kidding. Sort of. If we're not willing to walk in love according to the way the Bible describes and we redefine what it means, but even more importantly, you know what we do? If we're not willing to walk in love the way that Jesus describes, and what it means is that we're more offended at sin than Jesus is. If I'm unwilling to love others as commanded by God, then I think that I'm a better evaluator of evil than God. If I'm unwilling to love others as commanded by God, then I think I'm a better evaluator of evil than God. I mean, does anyone, I mean, we don't, no one would say this. We're, we're taught too well to say this, right? But do you honestly think you're more offended at abortion than Jesus is? Do you honestly think you're more offended at racism than Jesus is? More offended at misogyny, more offended at, do you, does anyone, no one would say that, but the way we act, if I'm willing to act outside of what Jesus commands, and I, then I believe that I know better than him. As if I'm more offended at sin than Jesus is. So if Jesus was offended at all sins so much that he died for, and don't think he didn't live in an age where all these sins took place. Do your research. Abortion and infanticide in Jesus' day was rampant. I read an article this morning, and looking at the tools that they used, it was grotesque. I couldn't believe it. And it still is. But Jesus was able to be around these people. He accepted where they at, where they're in their consciousness, so he could teach them, make disciples. If we are unwilling to love as commanded by God, then we think that we are the evaluators of evil more than God. And I can tell you right now, as passionate as you are about whatever issue you think is important, you are not more offended at it than God. And you are probably more sinful than the people that disagree with you on that particular issue. None of us are more offended at sin than God. So the morality that Jesus told us to have in light of the culture, he knew he was saying it in light of how offended he was at the sins of the culture. And he said, I want you to be like me. So I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of people. I'm going to explain what the truth is. I'm going to demonstrate what the truth is and give them an opportunity to accept the truth. 
But if they don't, then they'll be judged at some point. This is the problem. This is why Paul mentions you're going to give an account to God. He's reminding us, you're not God. You're not God. You're not allowed to make pronunciations about people's salvation. The scripture says even, even angels, the archangels don't even rebuke Satan. They say, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You got people running around talking about they rebuking Satan and, and fighting demons and all that. Fam, if that chair moved by itself across the room, you'd be gone. <laughs> Let one of these, couple of these chairs knock over. Y'all gonna be like, man, Pastor Curtis, fast. I'm out. I will entrust my wife and kids to the Lord. I'm gone. <laughs> Even angels don't rebuke Satan. They said the Lord rebuke you. If we fail to walk in love, then we will, not, we will do what he says not to do, which is this, verse 15. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. He's saying, don't let your personal conviction ruin someone's confidence in the Lord. He said, you're destroying someone who Christ died. That covers both image bearers, all people, and then Christians. Here's proof of this. 1 Timothy 4.10, it says this. For this reason, we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Jesus is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And he says, you will destroy people. You'll destroy people by your personal convictions. Not only that, he says in verse 16, look what happens. Therefore, because of that, don't let your good be slandered. The goodness of your personal convictions will be slandered if you try to oppose, impose them on other people. Remember in Matthew 7, Jesus said, look, the measure that you judge others will be measured to you. So you're going to be judged the same way you judge other people. And I think this happens all the time. Sometimes when I just, when I'm in the mood for a little bit of hilarity, I just scroll, flip through Twitter. And people are just judging people. I told y'all last week about them saying, oh, don't go to Disney World. And the next thing, they're taking pictures at Disneyland with the Mickey Mouse is. And you're getting judged. People are going after you. Now you're blocking people. I just block people. People be proud about it. I block people. I know Christians would be proud about being blocked. What you proud for? You might have got blocked because you were sinning against that person and they, didn't get, they were tired of it. What you boasting about being blocked for? Or blocking people because you don't like them saying what you said to them. Don't let your good be slandered. Your character will be spoken of in a negative manner because you are making decisions to not walk in love towards others. This is God's definition. He said this knowing what cultures of the world that we were living. Let me give you proof. When Jesus was tempted in both Luke and Matthew chapter 4s, it said in one of the temptations, Satan took Jesus and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment's notice. So somehow God gave Satan the power to let Jesus see what every kingdom in society would look like. So if Jesus didn't know, in that moment, he knew what kind of world this was going to be. And he gave us moral commands 
commands to be like him, knowing what kind of world this is going to be. And he didn't say, love people unless they agree with you on these particular issues. This is an epidemic in the church. It may not be our church, but remember, the devil wears Prada. That cerulean blue is trickling down. And I think some of us are wearing a sweater. In verse 17 and 18, he gives one of the best examples of an eternal perspective that we should have that motivates our deciding not to put a stumbling block in front of other people. In verses 17 and 18, I love that he says this. He says this, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. This is amazing. Now, contextually speaking, he's talking about eating and drinking, right? Because this is the context of the people that he's talking to. You know, this is a big theological issue for them that is causing particular applications of morality and obedience. And he says, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Let's pause for a second and, and think about how profound that statement is. Eating and drinking are two of the most important things that give us sustenance. If we do not do those things, we will die. You will die if you do not eat and drink. We need it. God designed us. Jesus designed us to eat and drink. But what he says is the kingdom of God is not about that. The kingdom of God is not about the most necessary things that we need in this life. This is why Jesus in John 4, when he was talking to the woman at the, at the well and they brought food, he said, I have food. My food is to do the will of God. When Satan tempted him and he was hungry in the wilderness, he said, turn these stones to bread. He said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul is saying, look, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's not about the things that you even need to live in this life. It's about the way Jesus has shaped your life. That's why he said, well, what is it about then? If it's not about eating and drinking, what is it about? Righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, living a moral life, obeying Jesus, peace. You have peace because you know that no matter what I'm experiencing here, the promises is that I got something better waiting. That's the only reason for peace. You can't, I don't have any peace by any political decision. I don't have any peace by that. Even if I, I agree with the decision, I don't have any peace by that. It's about to be more hectic. What about the people who work for pregnancy centers and things like that? Their lives are in danger now. Their lives are in danger. This morning, a friend of mine, a fellow pastor in North Carolina, he posted this on Facebook. Some people were confused when I spoke of the church's enemies rising up against her. In case you were still confused, here was one example that happened this weekend. This is the 40th such incident since Roe v. Wade was leaked. And it's, it's a Blue Ridge pregnancy center with, that has been vandalized. And he has multiple pictures of them asking and calling out for prayer. So it's like, yeah, celebrate the decision. But don't forget about the people now who are going to be on the front lines. No one's going to attack my tweet. But they may attack the facility down the street for working before this decision was even made. 
says, righteousness, peace, our peace comes from the fact that we're good. Whatever happens in this world, he says we're good if we persevere to the end. So I'm sorry if I'm not swayed by the cultural moments because I'm, I'm looking forward to the life after this. I'm biggie, life after death. I'm looking forward to that. I'm not saying I'm ready. I got a death wish. I'm just saying I'm good with what happens. I don't care who's the president because ultimately God is sovereign over whoever sits in that seat. And some people be like, well, that then fine. Okay? Just don't get mad at me because I'm not as offended as you are. I'm all right with it. And one of the reasons why, because it says there's joy in the Holy Spirit. Oh, I like that phrase. You know why? Because he doesn't just say joy. Because anybody, remember that little thing, happy, happy, joy, joy, whatever that cartoon was? It was like getting on my nerves. He says joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what's missing. And this is what I think I see happening to the church culture in this age that we live in. You have Christians that are often shaped morally. But Jesus says we're to be shaped messianically. You see, the Pharisees had morality. Luke 18, man, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like this dude. I tithe, I do this, I do that. They had morality. They weren't willing to sin in ways that the Gentiles were. But Jesus says this in Matthew, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Because you must be more righteous than them. Because everybody can do good works. We know people from different religions that do good things. Muslims pray five times a day. Some of us don't pray that in a week. Morality is not what we're shaped. We're supposed to be shaped messianically. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. Not just morality. Do good because I've done good to you. Jesus said, I always do the will of the Father. So he wants us to do the same, to have our motives, not just our consciences, but our very motives directed at obeying him. A lot of Christians are satisfied with being shaped morally, but are not being shaped messianically. And so Paul says here in verse 18, whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. Here's the goal, to serve Christ and be acceptable to God. This may not be your experience, and that's fine. But the devil wears Prada. It's working its way down. Last verses, 19 through 23, says, So then, let us pursue what promotes peace, what builds up one another. You know what's a good question to ask? Here's what you're asking your D groups this week. What promotes peace? What promotes peace and what builds up one another? Great question to ask. What promotes that? What promotes peace? Judging other people's convictions about things, doesn't it? Look what he says in verse 20. This is a crazy thought. He says, do not tear down God's work because of food. Now, that's, the food is the context, but what is food to you? Do not tear down God's work in a believer because you have a different personal conviction than they do about something. 
That's crazy. It says, tear down what someone eats. He said, it's better to just not make it an issue. If you have different convictions on an issue, then he said, it's better to make it a non-issue. Look at verse 21. It's a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So even if there are things that you want to do or you need to do or things that you believe that you think are important, that may be fine for you. But once you start saying that everyone needs to think this is important and feel this way and be this passionate, then you've crossed the line. And remember, you're going to give an account to God. You're not going to give an account for what they said and believed. We tear down other believers because we feel passionately about an issue that may be biblical, but does the Bible command you to explicitly go after that issue in everyone else's life? Does the Bible command that? If it does, I would love to see what passages. There's a difference between this is what the Bible tells me I have to do, I have to do, between this is how I'm applying what the Bible says do. There's a big difference. A big difference. There are things that I care about that the Bible doesn't explicitly say, you need to go after this. But I'm passionate about it. And there are things that you're passionate about. I got friends that are pastors that have been preaching at abortion clinics for years. I've never done a sermon on abortion. Am I not a good pastor because of it? Do not destroy God's work because of he uses eating and drinking. What is it for you? Is it entertainment? Is it entertainment? Because you don't watch horror films, no Christian should? Or because you don't like movies with gratuitous violence, no Christian should watch it? Is it entertainment for you? Is it politics? Is it politics? Is it, man, if we don't feel strongly about this issue? Remember I told you about a pastor who said, you're not a Christian unless you believe life begins at conception. Book, chapter, and verse, please. What's your issue? What's your food? You have one. I have one. The question is, how do I go about explaining, describing, or even trying to persuade other believers? And if people are unwilling to be persuaded, I'm not talking about, this is, these are disputable matters. I'm not talking about clear biblical moral issues. But I could be talking about the way you and I apply things to certain issues. One thing I love about Jesus, apart from him flipping over the tables in the temple, and apart from him at times being offended at the, the, the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, Jesus wasn't offended at people. He wasn't offended at people. 
I remember in Luke 17, he heals 10 lepers. And then one of them comes back. Ten lepers, nine were Jewish, and one was not. And he said, go, I made you clean. They're called son of David, all this stuff. So Jesus heals all ten of them. One of them comes back. And it was the non-Jewish dude. And Jesus says, where are the other nine? And they was like, I don't, I don't know. And he says, man, this foreigner is the only one who comes back to praise God? But Jesus wasn't offended. She, while they were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So brothers and sisters, are you easily offended when people disagree with you, even if it's passionate, political, or any other word that starts with P? If we're easily offended at other believers, then we have to examine what passions are at war within me. God will judge these people in his time, and the Lord is able to make them stand. You see, grace recognizes that people grow in time. There may be things that people need to grow in. But when you start saying you're not a Christian, if you've basically cut off any grace in their life. And I think God in this passage is essentially asking, who do you think you are? We're not the Lord. We're supposed to be like him. So he concludes with this. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Some of these things, it's like it's not even important. If you're going to get so offended at people disagreeing with or not making it as important as you do, then just keep it between you and the Lord. Who cares who you voted for? Keep it between you and the Lord. Who cares about this issue? That's almost impossible in our day and age. I know it's impossible for me. I got to tweet something. Just keep it between you and the Lord. Now, this passage is not saying we shouldn't have perspectives about disputable matters. It doesn't say we shouldn't have personal convictions. It doesn't say we shouldn't do things in light of our faith. It doesn't say that. What it's saying is there are issues that will be important to you that are going to not be as important to the people, person sitting right next to you. And they're listening to the same teaching you're listening to, sing the same songs you do, but they don't have the same passion you do about that issue. The question is, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? And if you're offended, then God is offended at you. It's offensive to God to be offended at, angry at, fellow believers. 1 John 4.20 says, look, I'm paraphrasing this. He says, you can't love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. That's God's words. He says, from God's perspective, you do not really love me if you hate them. But again, here's the thing. Let's redefine what love means. Love isn't always rebuke, correction, or admonishment. In fact, you don't even find that in the definitions of love anywhere in Scripture. Those are activities that may spawn out of love. But that's not what those are. What's happened is we've been shaped by the political morality, the cultural morality of our day, instead of being shaped by the Bible messianically. 
in the cultural world, man, we go after it. Let's call out everyone who disagrees with us. When we're shaped messianically, it's like, listen, God has worked, is working on people's consciences. He needs to work on mine. Let me be patient and love these folks and try to be helpful. And if I can't do that, I'll just keep my stuff to myself. So that old mother's adage, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. Well, she got that from Romans. <laughs> Whatever you believe about these things, keep it between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves of. You can approve of things and have a moral character towards others that you condemn yourself. I think if people here, the people who were here depart from me, I never knew you. I don't think they're going to be people because they didn't understand things theologically. It's because they didn't understand things morally. They forgot that love is the essence and the love for one another is what makes Jesus appear to be real to a dying world. But when they see fighting and bickering, which is already too late on one level, but our church, we don't have to be that way. But we understand that there may be some that feel that way. And we get if you feel like you have to make a decision. But as for this church, as long as I'm here at least, I'm fighting to make sure that we're not identified by anything except what the Bible says. And we're going to be shaped messianically. Morally, everyone's moral. Every religion has a degree of morality, but none of those religions are going to make it because they're not shaped messianically. They're not motivated by the Messiah. Our morality is motivated by who loves us, not by who agrees with us. And if we're willing to do that, the Lord says we're acceptable to him. Let's pray. Father, as I pray before this message, I'm limited, I'm finite, I'm sinful, I'm incapable of capturing and communicating all that you want to have understood from this passage. So I pray to you that you would let them hear something better than I communicate. I understand that I have severe limitations, and I thank you that you allow people, you have given people a measure of trust and faith and respect towards me that they're willing to listen and to my, to my immaturity at times. I am not you and I can't communicate exactly what you want. So Lord, I pray that whatever was said today, that you want people to believe and apply, that you would burn it in their hearts. I know I probably said many things wrong, but there were definitely some things I did not say they were wrong because they were what you said. And if nothing else, I repeated what you said in your word, even just by reading it. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, help us to be able to go after our own personal convictions and not impose them on others. Help us to be shaped messianically and not settle for morally. Every religion has some morality, but only the true believers are shaped messianically. And that messianically shaping of us allows us to love other people, to welcome people who are weak in faith and not be quick to accuse, 
to use our platforms to call out, we don't know what you're doing in people's lives. And what we believe today may change five years from now. Your grace is always working. Let us remember the grace you've given us. For we are not who we were some years ago. Lord, shape us and help us when necessary to shape others. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, we have a few questions that have come in. And remember, if you have any questions, you can text those to 240-623-8076. The first one is this question. Um, can you explain how judging someone tempts them to sin? Because judging someone, at least in the way that Romans 14 is talking about, is condemning a person. And it's making a pronouncement about a person, and you might not even have all the data. A lot of times we judge people's motives, and we have no idea why sometimes we do what we do. I mean, if anyone in here has been married, you've done that hand over fist. If you're a parent, you've done the hand over fist. You just judge your spouse or your children's motive. If you have any close relationships with anyone, you've just judged someone's motive, and you have no idea. And so when you get judged, you're tempted to what? Defend yourself, especially if it's not true. There are things that are just not true. There are judgments made about people all the time. You, you judge people by something that they said, and you think that's all that they are. Right. And all of a sudden now, it's like it happens. It happens all the time, particularly if you have some type of public office. There are people who don't know me at all that will judge the passion in which I preach as if I'm in the office yelling at people. You got to. It's like, that's, that's not true at all. There are people that we don't know that we just judge them, or people that we do know, and we judge their motives. We judge facial expressions. You know what we can do is just ask questions. Hey, are you upset? Is something bothering you? It's like, no, why, I mean, you, why are you upset? That's one way, to, that's a question, but it's also like a, a statement of like, I, I've done that before, my poor wife. I've done that before. My kids, what's wrong with you? That's a question, but it's also a statement. I'm convinced something's wrong. We do it all the time. So I think when we judge other people, but particularly in the context of this, he's talking about theological issues that are either not explicitly commanded in the Bible or are reinterpreted through Jesus. There's a different grace that they have from the Mosaic covenant to Jesus. And so now you have, okay, you're judging people. And usually when you judge people, you're not judging them for good things. You're judging them as not being something because of what you perceive them doing or not doing. So that offends them. I mean, think about when you've been judged, especially if it's false. It's not even what you were thinking. It's not even why you said that. Do you feel like, oh, man, thanks for judging me, bro. Like, I love you, though, family. It's like, no, you're just like, whoa, what, where is this coming from? Now you're on the defensive. And, saying, and, we, and we fail miserably sometimes when we do that. So, yeah, that's what I believe that means. Um, the next question is, do you remember that time we were meeting and you yelled at me? I do, and I ask for forgiveness. <laughs> no, I don't remember that time. I don't either, but I'm just saying, we'll just keep the party going, you know. The next question is... Um, is are you saying that abortion is a disputable matter? <laughs> so let me tell you why I'm laughing. I'm not laughing at the question. I'm laughing because when I was brushing my teeth, the Lord told me someone's going to ask this question. Exactly this question. Are you saying abortion is a disputable matter? So I don't know if this person is new or been around. I've already said I think abortion is evil. I don't think it's a Abortion, the act of abortion, is not a disputable matter. 
what I think is disputable is political abortion. Let me explain what I mean. The act of abortion I don't think is a disputable matter. But political abortion is the emphasis in which I need to go after it. The weight in which I put to it. The anger and the morality that shapes the way I view people who may disagree with it. See, that's political because when it's political, see, to me, political abortion exists because it's about opposing the left. Most people aren't convicted because of what Jesus said. Because if you're convicted about babies being killed, that's a, that's a derivative, that's an application of loving your neighbor as yourself. Then why are you so angry at the people who do it then? So you, so you love the unborn people that you don't ever, haven't ever seen, but you don't love the people who you do see. So that's political abortion to me. Abortion isn't a disputable matter at all. I don't think so. But I think demanding that I react a particular way and get behind it and feel a certain way and have the vitriol and call out other people, the Bible does not explicitly command me to do that. That's a political issue. That's about the left. That's about destroying my political opponents. We're not even going to get into the history of how abortion became an issue. Even that was an act of vengeance against the government. That wasn't based on conviction. So, no, I don't think it's a disputable matter. But I don't think I'm supposed to, imp I don't measure if people are believers based on what they think about it. And I'm not going to sound the alarm and all of a sudden, let's go. This isn't the horn of, of uh, what was that horn they blew in the Old Testament? The horn of show. This ain't the shofar over here. All right, now let's go to the. And that's how I think a lot of Christians are reacting. It's like, hey, be passionate about it. Stand up for it. Vote against it. But the Bible says, if you do not love your brother, then you don't love God. So what? So there's a scripture that says, what good if it, is it for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What good is it to get a law changed and lose your salvation in the process? Because you're so offended, you're so angry, you don't even have a testimony anymore. People wouldn't even, wouldn't even hear the gospel if they heard you teach it because all you do is get angry. That's political abortion. That is a disputable matter to me. The way in which I need to engage, and there's a lot of stuff I think is evil, but I don't have the conviction or the time to go after everything. And if Jesus was able to accept what was happening in the culture and do it a particular way, then I want to do it how he commanded it. Going after the left or the right, if you, that's not biblical. That's political. That's cultural. I'm not defending constitutional amendments. The morality that I'm after is what Jesus said. There's nothing in the Constitution that says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. It doesn't say that. It just says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the morality of the Constitution. We have a Constitution. It's 66 books. And by the grace of God, I'm trying to live in that constraint. And if that means that some people get offended because I'm not passionate about what they think and I need to stand up, then so be it. Like, I'm good with that. I've been shot at point-blank range. I can handle somebody calling me woke or saying this. Like, okay, guess what? I'm going to the movies with my kids. Like, what does that even mean? So I just think there's a political abortion that has nothing to do with God or the Bible, or none of it. It has to do with opposing the political party on the other side. And I'm not going for it.
Amen. Um, Thank you, Lord. I'm just laughing because the Lord told me. He was like, they're going to ask you this question. I said, okay, Lord, what do I say? I kid you not. I was brushing my teeth. But I just, they're going to ask you, do you think abortion? I know it. The Lord is something else. Um, could you give an example of a clear moral issue in Scripture versus a disputable matter versus a specific personal application of a moral issue that may not be explicitly commanded in Scripture? I think I understand what they're saying. So can I give an example of an issue that may be an application of Scripture that's not necessarily commanded by Scripture to do? So let's use abortion. Does the Bible explicitly command you to go after this issue? It does not. Now, can you go after this issue? Yeah. And we live in a cultural construct in which God has allowed us to vote, to have a, a certain kind of political system in which we can say that we agree with these things as best as we can. I don't think there's any political party that encompasses everything that we believe. But if you vote for something, you're voting for all of it because they don't let you pick and choose. It ain't like fast food. Like, hey, let me get, so let me get gun right, gun laws, uh, universal health care, and abortion. You don't get to do that. You either pick what this side says or what this side says, right? So I think the Bible doesn't explicitly command us to do anything. The Bible doesn't explicitly command us to make a more moral society because you can be more and more. Let's just say all the laws that we think glorify God get passed. None of those change anyone's hearts to believe in Jesus. And if anyone thinks that Satan, listen, 2 Corinthians 11, it says this about Satan, that he is an angel of light. Right? That means morality. And it says, it's no wonder that his servants appear as angels of righteousness. So there is a morality that Satan is cool with. He doesn't mind a society that is good and all these things as long as they don't believe in Jesus. Because morality alone doesn't make anyone acceptable to God. It has to be you've taken on Jesus's morality. So again, it's, it's, we live in a day and age where these, so I think that's a clear issue for me. There's plenty of issues you can name. So I don't think, no, I think vote against it, do what you want. I think we can stand up against it. That's fine. But does the Bible explicitly command us to do that? Because if it does, there are Christians all over the world that don't even have close to the luxuries we have. There are Christians that walk and hide the Bible in their shoes, in their clothes, because if they get caught, they'll get arrested, killed, or raped. Are they being... Fearful Christians, because they're not walking around like, hey, I stand for, you don't have to do that. So I think that's an issue where, okay, a lot of the political issues of our day, there are things that the Bible says about them, maybe not ex explicitly, but indirectly. Can they say do not murder? But then let's just say, okay, do not murder. That's the justification for people with abortion. Cool. But there's lots of murders that happen. So what if you're more passionate about when these murders happen? It's all that kind of stuff. So I just think there are plenty of examples that the Bible doesn't, you know, I said last week, you could be like, hey, I don't go to movies because Romans 12 says to not be conformed to this. That's not what the Bible's saying. Like, oh, because she's drinking. Some people think you can't drink and it'd be sinful. Where does it say that? Paul told Timothy, man, take a little wine for your stomach. Not only is it okay to get a drink or two, it's, you mean your stomach is hurting, forget ginger ale, get a little wine in you. 
Now, that's how some people would apply. That's not what it's saying. But I know people that act like, oh, man, if you drink, that's sinful. Like, it's like, that's not what the Bible says. Getting drunk is sin. Now, if you're hanging with someone and they're like, yeah, I don't drink, man, it's like, okay, cool. I'm not having a drink then. Or I might say, hey, would it bother you if I had? Now, I'm not a drinker, but I'm saying I've seen people be like, would it bother you if I had a drink? No, no, go ahead. If it's like, ah, it's like, okay, cool. No big. Let me get a Dr. Pepper, man. Hey, put a little bit of vodka in there, Tony. <laughs> I think there's a lot of issues where it's just like, all right, this isn't that serious. So that's, that's what I would say. All right, this actually uh, is uh, seeking to understand how what you're saying applies in the context of, of parenting. So here's some, a little backstory. Um, so this parent has been struggling with, their, with one of their children on uh, what to eat and drink. They, the child, says, uh, but you can't force me. <laughs> um, so the parent says, uh, am I just forcing my personal conviction on them? especially if I believe that they are capable of and have uh, capable of eating it and basically that we've received this from the Lord. So the uh, question is where, how does obedience to me as a parent show up as they process this? So my assumption is the person who asked this isn't talking about adult children, but if they are, I think that's a different thing, right? Honor your mother and father as a child is different than as an adult. So if you're talking about adult children and they live in your home. They're young children. They're young. Okay, good. I was going to say, I don't need to go there then. There's some people here be like, man, I don't like the pastor curse. Yeah, I, I got to eat my vegetables. I try to and force I'm my kids to eat, you know, stuff all the time. Be mad at me because I say eat them lima beans. Do like me. Cha-cha, slide them to the right. So I think the dynamic between a parent and a child is, is different. So here's, let me just say this. Here's when you're forcing your conviction or whatever on your child is if you're exasperating your child to do it. So just because it's your child doesn't mean you, you're allowed to be impatient, angry, and frustrated. Like the fruits of the Spirit are not towards everyone but your children. They're towards your children in particular because, if anything, they're learning what Christianity is like by watching you. And I've seen more people walk away from the faith, not because they didn't understand it, but because the people they live with the most didn't demonstrate it. And so and I'm not saying that as a punchline. We all have failed at times. But, it, but So I think when you're imposing your conscience, it's not... Your children don't have to. They can eat whatever they want. No, they have to listen to you. And you have to think about, okay, then I'm not going to let you eat until you do this. Or maybe you reason with them. All right, I'll let you eat this until tomorrow, but today you're going to. It really depends. And it is age. And it, I mean, if you're talking about a kid that's two, it's like, hey, look, <laughs> you're not watching the, I mean, there are consequences, right? You're not watching the little show today unless you eat this, right? There's a, there's a number of ways. I think. But when you impose your conscience, what the Bible's talking about is when you're judging, you're shaming, and when you're offended and you're relating to your child in offense, then you're outside of the fruits of the Spirit too. So if, and we all do that. So when we fail, that's why we ask our children for forgiveness. I will ask for forgiveness of tones, things that I've said, because they're human beings. We, parents often, we think of them as our children, and so we kind of have this special right to like almost, well, I don't do as I say, not as I do. And that's unbiblical. 
it's their people whom the fruits of the Spirit must be applied. So, again, I don't know the specifics of your child's attitude and what your relationship is with, with that child, but I, think, I don't think it's wrong for you to tell your child this is what you're eating. I think what's wrong is when you are sinful when they refuse. It may require more patience. It may require a particular strategy, but it doesn't mean you get to just be angry. And so even if you need to discipline them physically, you got to take the log out of your eye. There were times when my kids were little that if I was angry, I just wouldn't spank them because I knew that I know that I'm angry. And so you got one. I remember telling my son, they don't remember this, but I was like, man, y'all got out of one today because I'm offended. I'm angry. I'm just not going to hit them. I'm not saying I've never sinned against my kids while I was angry, but I just decided, right? I chose not to do that if they're, because I know that I'm going to hit a little harder and I'm going to make it more personal than it needs to be. If they're a child, they just, they're stubborn, they're sinful, they came into the world <laughs> having a definition of good and evil on their own, and it's our job as parents to persuade them. And there are consequences for that, but we have to make sure that we're not offended and sinning against them because that's the problem. That's the issue. All right. And for those of you that don't have kids yet, they'd be like, yup, yup, <laughs> wait till you have kids. <laughs> it's always easy to say what you're going to do when it's not your turn, then when it's your turn, you forget what you said you were going to do. All right. Let's give this to the Lord. By his grace, we are reminded each week, if I fail to do it or Mike fails to do it in the actual sermon, then by default, we are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We get to eat this particular wafer and drink this juice as a result of Christ dying on the cross for our sin. And this is a way that he asked us to remember him. I love that about this. There's, there's few things in the Bible that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In a credible translation, you won't find any but this. But he does say, you know, if we love him, obey his commandments. So we are to remember what he's done for us. And the way that we are fortunate enough to do it each week is by taking this, removing the bread, reminding ourselves that this represents his body that was broken, beaten on our behalf so that you and I could be shaped messianically and not just morally. So we thank him for this. Let's eat together. This juice represents the literal blood that came out of his body that was spilled with his back being ripped open and the blood coming from the nails in his hands and the spear that went in his side. That blood represents a new relational status between God and us that we call the new covenant. It's, it's, it represents his blood that was shed for us so our blood wouldn't be spilled in the same way. We thank him for this and we drink this together. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that we live in times like this. Lord, you tell us to pay attention to the sign of the times so we don't ignore what's happening in the culture. There's no such thing as we don't preach this or preach that. Whatever's happening in the times, we want to pay attention to the signs. And as best as we can, try to figure out how does your word apply to each cultural moment that we're in. 
We will never ignore any issue, but we will never let an issue become the gospel for us. So, Father, I pray that whatever was true today, that you would burn it in the hearts of each of us. And whatever was not, then you would allow us to forget. And that whatever someone disagrees with, may they be charitable in their judgment. Talk to me about it. Show me where I'm in error, biblically, not politically. I don't care what the left or the right say or do. But I do care what you say, do. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us for those who are here as members and those who are just guests. Help us to apply this for your glory and our good. In your name we pray.